From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Tuesday edition, earlier this afternoon, President Biden said there is no evidence of Russian de-escalation in Ukraine. Our analysts indicate that they remain very much in a threatening position. And the fact remains, right now, Russia has more than 150,000 troops encircling Ukraine and Belarus and along Ukraine's border. An invasion remains distinctly possible. We'll talk with Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And how deep is the deep state? Is anyone safe? Those are just some of the questions being asked after last Friday's court filing by Special Counsel John Durham. According to the Special Counsel's latest court filings, individuals working for Hillary Clinton, uh, her campaign, not only spied on candidate Donald Trump, but gained access to Internet traffic pertaining to the executive office of the president of the United States. Where might this investigation lead? We'll talk about that as well with Senator Blackburn, who serves on the Senate Judiciary Committee as well. And too little too late, Washington, D.C. Mayor Bowser has apparently awakened to the reality that she was moving in the opposite direction from the sane world. The mayor has lifted the vaccine passports and the mask mandates for most indoor venues. But the cumulative effect of her mismanagement of the federal city has become a major issue with congressional Republicans. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has said when Republicans gain a congressional majority, they will hold the D.C. government accountable for everything from COVID overreach to record-setting homicides to pervasive homelessness. Kentucky Congressman James Comer, ranking member on the House Oversight Committee, the congressional committee that has jurisdiction over D.C. government, joins us a little later here on Washington Watch. In our Olympics 2022 Human Rights on Ice segment, we'll be joined by FRC's Mary Sock as we look at how China's restrictive one-child policy that led to millions of abortions and abandoned children has morphed into a three-child policy. Now, does this suggest the regime is reforming? We'll talk about it a little later here on Washington Watch. And remember this. 12 years is no longer enough today to compete with the rest of the world in the 21st century. That's why my American Families Plan guarantees four additional years of public education for every person in America, starting as early as we can. That was President Biden in April of last year in a speech before Congress announcing yet another one of his trillion-dollar spending plans. Uh, this one, ch early childhood education. Is this a good idea or a bad idea? We can find the answer in a new longitudinal study out of Tennessee on academic preschool programs. We'll talk with Dr. Katherine Stevens from the Center on Child and Family Policy. The website, TonyPerkins.com, the entire program is archived there. You can watch it later if you miss anything. You can also share it with your friends. From today's Stand on the Word, our two-year Bible reading plan, we highlight Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, the Lord said, I will come to you and I will bless you. There is power in the name of the Lord. May we not go silent nor shrink back from proclaiming the name of Jesus. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 44, 5, through you we will push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. To find out more about the Bible reading plan, go to frc.org slash Bible. And just a reminder, you can join me each morning at 8.44 a.m. Eastern Time on my Facebook page, or you can go to TonyPerkins.com for a daily devotion from our passage of the day. In October of 2020, then U.S. Attorney General William Barr appointed Attorney John Durham to serve as DOJ's special counsel to continue his investigation into matters related to the 2016 presidential campaigns, in particular the origins of the Trump-Russia collusion probe. Well, last Friday night, Durham filed his latest set of charges claiming that a tech executive with ties to the Clinton campaign exploited his access to non-public and or proprietary internet data and tasked researchers at a U.S.-based university to, quote, mine internet data to establish an inference and narrative tying then-candidate Trump to Russia, end quote. Durham claims that the executive indicated that he was seeking to please certain VIPs, which included individuals at the Clinton campaign. Well, despite this, legacy media shrugging off the special counsel's latest filings. Why are they? 
but why shouldn't they? Well, with me now to talk about this and more is Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, who serves on four Senate committees, including Senate Judiciary Committee and the Armed Services Committee. Senator Blackburn, welcome back to the program. Good to join you. Thank you so much. And thanks for talking about the Durham report. Kind of amazing that the mainstream media has chosen not to talk about this at all. It, 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 well, not really. Uh, they want to they want to sweep this under the rug. But before we get into more evidence, I believe, of a deep state, President Biden announced about two hours ago that the U.S. has no evidence that a Russian uh, move to de-escalate is underway in Ukraine. What, what do you know about that? What we know is that Russia has continued to menace there along the Ukraine border. Uh, we have been disappointed that the president did not move forward in the fall with sanctions, with sales of lethal assistance to the Ukrainian army so that they could defend themselves. We've been disappointed that there was not a comprehensive and unified messaging coming from the diplomatic side of these negotiations. And we're, we are pleased that the administration has finally stepped up. But Tony, as you well know, when it comes to this type activity by our adversaries, you can't sit around and wait. You have to be proactive in what you're going to do and go ahead with sanctions, go ahead with these sales to let them know you're not taking this lightly. And uh, unfortunately, the action coming from the Biden administration is more reactive. It is now postured as if you do this, then there will be no Nord Stream 2. That could have been done last fall so that the buildup never occurred. It's a really good point, Senator Blackburn, because not only is it the Biden administration, but Democrats, uh, primarily in the Senate, you know, two weeks ago, we heard that there was a, motion, a bill working its way through for sanctions. Obviously, there was a disagreement over whether the sanctions should be proactive, as you've described, or reactive, as the tendency is. We have nothing. Uh, so we're going to wait to see what Russia does. So actually, we're sitting on the sidelines doing absolutely nothing to prevent this invasion from of Ukraine. That's right. It is the lead, by, lead from behind strategy that the Obama presidency exercised and now Biden is doing likewise. Now, Senator Jim Risch has legislation, which is the proactive approach on sanctions that we as Republicans would take. But here's one of the points that I think is so important for all of us to remember. You did not see our adversaries coming at us with President Donald Trump because they knew what he was going to do. He told them what he would do if they took an action. So they didn't do it. And it is important that we pay attention to that and that people use this time to look at it and see what a difference there is. You can look at Afghanistan, where the withdrawal under Biden was a debacle. Prior to that, 18 months, we did not lose any of our troops in Afghanistan. And then with the withdrawal and Biden in charge, 13 on one day because of the inconsistencies and the debacle that was there over that withdrawal. Well, Senator Blackburn, I am uh, grateful. You're one of those that does not lead from behind at all. You are out front. And one of the issues you've been uh, raising uh, even before you got into the Senate, but in particular, as we've seen in the last few years, the deep state, what do you make of the latest filings of the special counsel? What we know from um, General Durham's filings are, are this that this alleged link between the Clinton campaign through uh, Sussman, a top DNC lawyer, uh, Mark Elias, Jake Sullivan, uh, getting the tech exec who has now been identified, the company has been identified. There appears to be substance to this. I think what we see is the Durham investigation is moving into a new phase where they are identifying the specifics 
that transpired. And Tony, we have to remember the Trump campaign was being run out of Trump Tower. The mm -hmm. Trump transition was being run out of Trump Tower. I vice chaired that transition. When we got all of this information on allegations and surveillance, I wrote to DOJ. I said, was I being surveilled during this period of time? I never got a response. But I, I think what we will be able to find out is how far and how deep did this web go? Who all was involved? Who all were they surveilling? How much information? Did they pull from any of us that any individuals that were working there in Trump Tower, did they gather information on people that were not a part of the Trump campaign, but were residents in that tower? What have they done with that information? There are a lot of questions now that are coming into focus because of the work that John Durham is doing and what he has found out. I will tell you this. Jake Sullivan is who was Hillary's campaign lead at that point and who broke the news of all of this Russia collusion uh, is now President Biden's national security director. He should step down. You know, we have seen this kind of stuff. I mean, we saw it through the entire Trump administration, you know, the whole Russian collusion hoax and, and all of this. If the Republicans are able to retake the Congress in the next election, the midterm election, you know, people have been asking, when will folks be held accountable? And I know Durham's doing his investigation and it's, yeah. it's slow and methodical, but I hope it does lead to some resolution. But Congress has oversight. Uh, do you think, I mean, you're a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Can we can we expect to see something out of the Senate? I, indeed, we can. And yes, uh, he Durham is slow and methodical. He's already had indictments and prosecutions. There will be more to come. And of course, it is important for the Senate to conduct their oversight. We have to bear in mind that the Senate cannot indict anybody, they cannot try anybody. All of that is going to come through DOJ. And General Durham is going to continue with his investigation and bringing all of this forward. Well, I know there are a lot of folks waiting for that day because we've seen, you know, so much uh, duplicity. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, have, you have certain individuals that are being, that were, uh, charged with crimes, their their reputations and their lives ruined, while others just seem to, to get off scot-free who are actually guilty of things, or at least yeah, appear you know, to be. And, yes, and that is something, at church on Sunday, I had someone bring up this very point. They said, you know, going back into the Clinton years, when the Clintons were in the White House, there seem to develop a two-tier standard right. of justice right. and different people were treated different ways and they're ready for it to end you're absolutely right senator i know you'll stay on this as well senator marsha blackburn always great to talk with you thanks so much for joining us today you got it take care all right folks stick with us coming up the dc mayor announced yesterday she will allow her public health emergency declaration to expire today no more vaccine passports and masks in D.C. But it's not enough. We'll talk more after the break. Religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. So why should we care about it? Not just domestically, but also internationally? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an essential human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, religious persecution is a disturbing reality around the world, one that is rarely acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths are increasing in many regions around the world. Christians are called to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot defend themselves. That is why we must be advocates for the persecuted. Go to frc.org slash IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Learn what steps you can take to help the cause of the persecuted. Again, 
by visiting frc.org slash IRF. Here's a moment of hope for your home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Have you ever heard this? Dad, sis hit me. A mom, Bubby called me a bad name. Or even in public, have you ever heard this? What did you just say? Want to say that again and see what you get? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Love does not behave rudely. We are born with a nature that seeks our own will. Personally, I don't like to be disrespected or talked to in a disrespectful way. By nature, we seek to retaliate when treated rudely. The Bible teaches us not to return evil for evil. Parents, teach your children to speak straight when they're treated rudely and then walk away if possible. It takes more strength to walk away from rudeness than it does to respond in like manner. Don't just teach your children what to do. Show them. Learn more at hopeforthehome.org. This has been a moment of hope for your home. How do we change a nation? One heart at a time. The Ministry of Preborn not only shares heartbeats, but shares hearts by loving women in crisis and leading them to Christ. When this mother came to a preborn center, she was scared and not sure she could afford another child. It was just a scary time for us, having my daughter, how that would impact our lives. When I came here, it was just so amazing to come to an environment where someone would actually pray for me and guide me through my battles that I was facing during that time. After receiving love, support, and the gospel of Christ, this mom chose life for her daughter. You can be a part of rescuing lives and changing hearts for Christ. For $140, sponsor five ultrasounds, and you'll receive a story and pictures of babies' lives that were spared. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or go to preborn.com. Your gift is tax deductible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. Thanks for tuning in. And let me encourage you, invite a friend to uh, to watch Washington Watch as well. All right, uh, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy and Republicans on the House Oversight Committee want to hold D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser accountable for abusing the levers of power during the pandemic and implementing policies that they believe are hurting the nation's capital. And I can attest to that. Uh, in a response, Mayor Bowser announced yesterday that she will allow her public health emergency declaration to expire today, which means no more vaccine passports, which was killing local restaurants, small businesses. Uh, also, certain jurisdictions won't have to have masks in their buildings. Well, we never had them anyway. They were voluntary. But is this too little too late? Joining me now to talk about this is U.S. Congressman James Comer. He's the ranking member on the House Oversight Committee, which is the committee that has jurisdiction over the District of Columbia. He represents the 1st Congressional District of Kentucky. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on again. Well, let's talk about uh, the mayor's announcement yesterday. Um, is this uh, ju- is this reactionary? Is she, she finally seeing that she's moving in the opposite direction of the sane world? Well, I think she's following the political science. That's what we've said all along, and they're just a little late to the to the curve. And what they've realized, in my opinion, the Democrat mayors have got a fresh batch of polling in that shows that even liberal Democrats are sick and tired of their mandates. Uh, they're sick and tired of uh, wearing masks everywhere, having to whip out vaccine cards. Uh, now, and then some hotels and restaurants were going a step further, saying you had to have a vaccine uh, passport as well as a booster card. And it, it's just too much for the businesses. Every business realized that they're seeing a, a huge decline in, in their customer base. The airlines, every member of Congress will tell you over the last three months, we're getting back to pandemic level uh, attendance on these airlines because people are just saying, you know, I'm not going to Washington, D.C. And it's not just the mandate. It's the crime in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And this affects Congress because we want our constituents to come to Washington and we want them to feel safe. Washington, D.C. should be the model of democracy, but but it's not. You go to Washington, D.C., crime is up, homicides are up. 
shoplifting's up, carjacking's up. You're seeing more tent cities all over Washington, D.C. You can't take a, a cab from the airport to anywhere in Washington, D.C. without seeing all these homeless people and, and, and crimes and businesses boarded up. And enough is enough. And we're just trying to hold the mayor accountable. And I hope that we don't have to do it legislatively. But we're asking her to come before the Oversight Committee and explain to us what her plan is to reduce crime, to open businesses back up, and to get people to feel comfortable coming back to Washington, D.C. Yeah, I, mean, I see it every time I fly in and uh, drive into the office. I mean, I, I in fact, I was commenting to, uh, to, uh, to one of my members of the staff the other day. It reminded me of being in a third world country uh, where up mm. under every overpass, you've got these tent cities and such. But let, let me step back for just a second, Congressman. A, a little history lesson here of civics. The fact that Congress, you know, the, the District of Columbia is a federal city. And uh, up mm -hmm. until, I think, 1973, Congress basically governed the city. Now, they have home rule charter right. where they're able to home rule, where they're able to uh, do their own thing. But it's not been working out. What might we expect in the uh, in, a, in, a, in a new Congress that might be led by Republicans. Well, you're, we're going to expect to see Mayor Bowser be asked to come before the committee, and if she refuses to come, then you know we have subpoena power. Uh, surely, the goodness it won't come to that. Uh, the House of Representatives, specifically the House Oversight Committee, is supposed to be the check and balance over Washington D.C. And prior to '73, uh, Congress made most of the decisions for Washington, D.C. Uh, that changed, and, you know, it's worked out fairly well, I guess, up until uh, here in the last decade, and especially in the last two or three years, crimes escalate, businesses are in decline, people aren't feeling comfortable or welcome to come to their nation's capital to petition their government. That's a constitutional right of every American. But when you put it to where there's so many obstacles and rules and regulations to come to Washington, D.C., and then add to that the, the one of the highest crime rates in the world, then you've right. got a situation where somebody's got to step in and hold this mayor accountable. She's had policies of criminal excessive criminal justice reform, bail reform. You have prosecutors who are not prosecuting. They're woke. They're not prosecuting. They're not doing their job. They've defunded the police. They've put every kind of gun control you can possibly put on a on a city in place. And as a result, you're seeing escalating crime with no end in sight. And not, not to mention that the federal government pays a large part of the bill for the federal city. So there should be some voice into how the city's governed. There is. You know, we're going to have a lot of opportunity, hopefully, in, in a majority, in a Republican majority, to, to enact a lot of reforms. I hate to have to waste time uh, calling the mayor to come in to try to figure out how we solve the, the mess that she's created, but unfortunately, it's going to come to that, and that's going to be yeah. just something else that's going to be on our platter. We're going to give her an opportunity. I want her to be successful. I want Washington, D.C. to be a model city, a model for democracy. I want the planes to be full and the restaurants to be full and the hotels to be full, but what we've seen is a decline, and, and even when other cities have, have uh, gone back to business as usual, even some of the, the Democrat cities that had uh, pretty strict rules and regulations in, in place during the pandemic, Washington, D.C. has doubled down. They you know, still, up until this week, mask mandates, vaccine passports, children, even today, still have to wear masks. And, and you've got a school system that's not the model of public education in America and Washington, D.C., and the mask is only making it worse, the virtual learning only made it worse. So this is a city that is poorly run. Congress does have oversight over it. We're going to use our oversight. Uh, we're going to try to work with her to see that she can uh, work with the local elected officials to turn things around. If not, then Congress is going to uh, hold her accountable and uh, try to make some decisions for her. And it's unfortunate to get like that. I'm, I'm for local control. I, I don't want to be a, right. a nanny committee, but you know, it's not working out there. And it's, it's just, uh, there's no well, end in sight to, to the problems in Washington. Well, Congressman, 
Congressman Comer, I can say, uh, as one who spends a whole lot of time in D.C., I am thankful that uh, that day is coming where we can have some uh, oversight. Congressman, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, coming on today. You bet. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, stick, stick around. We're coming back after the break with our special segment, Human Rights on Ice. Don't miss it. Making the most of your money. Here's Dan Celia. I imagine that the question that I get most often when I travel about and I'm speaking, I'm doing town hall meetings, seminars, whatever the situation is, and of course on the radio every day, people ask me the question of how can I find a financial advisor that I can trust? And my answer is relatively simple. I really don't know. It's difficult to know the answer to that. I can give some red flags and give some things that you ought to be looking for. But you know what? I tell people all the time, and this is a sad state of uh, the environment in which we live, but just because someone is a Christian doesn't mean that they're either knowledgeable enough to do the right thing or, in fact, are going to do the right thing. That's not always the case either. Here's a couple of things that you might want to look for. If you are interviewing, as you should do, a financial advisor, the first thing you should think about is, do they have a solution for me? In other words, do they immediately have something that would help me that they want to put me in? That's red flag number one, because without a real proper and thorough getting to know you, it's very difficult for a financial advisor to really understand what your needs are. See, the other thing is, Do they have my goals and objectives and my best interest in mind, or is it in their best interest? You have to determine that. And last, the other thing is, do we both, if you're a married couple, feel good about that person? Or maybe the Lord has put a little bit of a check in your spirit. Pay attention and listen to it. It's usually right. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Then look for his podcast when you visit the website AFR.net. Aging 2022. Human rights on ice. Welcome back to Washington Watch. As the Olympics take place in Beijing, we've been focusing a segment each day on the repressive nature of that communist regime and their abuse of human rights. China's restrictive one-child policy led to millions of abortions and abandoned children, but it's morphed into a three-child policy. Now, Does that suggest that the regime has changed its view on the value of human life? Joining me now is FRC's Mary Sock. She's the director of our Center for Human Dignity. Mary, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. So let me put that question to you, Mary. We went from this one-child policy, which lasted for decades. Now they've morphed into a three-child policy. Did they somehow see the light and the value of human life? Unfortunately, no. When when China began their one-child policy in the late 1970s, early 1980s, what we saw was a, a lot of propaganda about how, you know, only having one child would make China a prosperous and powerful nation. Well, what China has realized is that a nation without people is with without children is a nation without hope. And there's there's not hope for for the future in China. They've seen all sorts of unintended and unexpected side effects there, um, such as an increased suicide rate among uh, elderly uh, members of their society. They've they've seen an an increased infertility rate among child age bearing women, um, and and they've seen as we expected, their population has declined. The the Chinese Communist Party sees people as a tool to serve the government. Um, They they believe that people were were created to serve them instead of to serve God. And their expansion to a three-child policy is no more than another attempt to use people as a tool to serve the government. Now, Mary, I would, uh, I, I'm tempted to say, you know, how could you miss this when you go to a one-child policy and it led to 
uh, sex selection abortions where we saw families that would abort girls because they wanted boys, especially in the uh, rural areas of, uh, of China because they work and they can provide income. All of a sudden, you have this uh, imbalance between male and female. I mean, you would think, oh, we, we, we could see that as plain as day. But, you know, we, we have to realize first, you know, America has done a lot of the same things with our embracing of unrestrained abortion all the way through the ninth month of pregnancy. We are suffering from these I would say, unintended consequences. I'm not sure that they're unintended by everybody, but certainly by uh, by most. So, you know, we, we got to be careful about uh, criticizing China on this point, because in some ways, you know, our policies have gotten worse uh, in the times that we've been challenging China on their one-child policy. They actually have. And, and you point out an interesting fact, Tony, which is that in China, actually, since since 2001, sex selective abortion has been illegal there, um, and and it is because of the number of baby girls that have been that have been killed since the one child policy was instituted. In the United States, there is no national no national law protecting life of any sort in the womb. And while, of course, we know that the motives of China behind this are are not. Uh, that they believe in the dignity of of every little baby girl in the womb. We know that their motives are are to serve their government. Um, but but here in the United States, we need to be very cautious uh, pointing the finger at China because because we certainly uh, can see here that we have we have allowed our culture to do the same thing that the Chinese government has done. We have allowed our culture to tell women. Um, if you don't have children, you will be prosperous. If you don't have children, you will advance your career. If you don't have children, you will succeed. That's what the Chinese government has said since the 1980s, and that's what American culture has said since 1973. Well, it uh, it goes back to a utilitarian view of human beings uh, that, as you said, they're there to serve the Chinese Communist Party. Well, you know, while we don't have a, a communist party leading America, you know, you see the same arguments when they embrace this whole green agenda that somehow children consume our limited resources. Therefore, if you have more than one or two, you're being irresponsible here in this country. So it's getting away from that understanding that every child is created in the image of God and therefore they have inherent value and they should be welcomed into the world and protected under our laws. I would argue, Mary, that in this area, because we've embraced China as an economic partner, once again, we see an area where America has been more influenced by China than we have influenced China. Absolutely, Tony. And one thing that Americans should recognize is that abortion was first legalized by the communist country of Russia. Um, that, 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 the, the, that was the first place where legal abortion took place. And it was used as a tool to dismantle the family. It was used as a tool to give, give the government control. Here in the United States, when we tell families how many children that they should be having, and, and when, we try to, when we try to make the family serve the economy instead of the other way around, as, as President Biden has, has tried so hard to, to make sure that we have mothers in the workforce, because, because mothers have to be serving the economy instead of right. the economy making life easier for mothers. When we do that, we're doing nothing but mirroring communist nations. Yep, just different words, uh, but uh, the same view of children and human life. Mary Sock, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. All right, on the other side of the break, early academic education for children. Is it a good thing? The president wants to make it available for everybody. Uh, mandatory, in some cases, across the country. Is it a good thing? We're going to talk about it next on the other side of the break. Don't go away. We'll, we'll be back with more Washington Watch in just a moment. For centuries, the Bible has inspired humanity and shaped the very world we live in. But how do we know this book is the Word of God and not merely the words of men? What we believe about the Bible is based on what we believe about its source. 
The God Who Speaks explores the evidence of the Bible's inspiration and authority through some of the world's most respected biblical scholars. We have essentially a dual authorship. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans. It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. He says, we saw this. And that sets the Bible apart from almost everything else in the ancient world and its religious pantheon of gods and goddesses. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. When you hear this... This is American Family News. You know what follows is the truth. Your news from a Christian perspective. Hundreds of teachers are going to have to walk into that school building and they are forced to swallow political ideology that in many cases violates their very faith and conscience. If you miss it at the top of the hour, American Family News podcasts are available at AFN.net and sign up for our daily news brief at AFN.net. This is Frank Effney, host of Secure Freedom Radio. It's your personal daily intelligence briefing about the challenges we face, how they're likely to affect you, and what we can do about them. You can find Secure Freedom Radio here every weeknight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Tune in to learn from our extraordinary experts what you need to know and will want to share. Join us for Secure Freedom Radio tonight at 11 Eastern, right here on AFR. I'm Peter Rosenberger, and this is your Caregiver Minute. Caregivers often see our money, jobs, independence, health, our very identity all being sucked into the dark void of caregiving, and it frightens us. And that fear sometimes incites us to rage and reactive behavior. Everyone's felt the flight-or-fight adrenaline rush that comes at a crisis, but caregivers seem to deal with the relentless crisis that wash over us without mercy and plunges into what often feels like terror. We don't, however, have to go toe-to-toe gripped in mortal combat with every issue— Sidestepping a few of those issues, we can let go of the burning compulsion to obsess on them. Borrowing from my martial arts instructor, he told me that if we see an enemy on the horizon, keep an eye on the enemy, but deal with what's in arm's reach. Today has enough danger and challenges. Tomorrow will take care of itself. This has been your Caregiver Minute with Peter Rosenberger, brought to you by Standing with Hope, a ministry for the wounded and those who care for them. There's more information at standingwithhope.com. You're listening to Washington Watch, and I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Late last April, in his first speech to a joint session of Congress, President Biden officially announced his $1.8 trillion American Families Plan, which, among other things, uh, would add four more years of free, free public education to the universal schooling for K through 12 students. 12 years is no longer enough today to compete with the rest of the world in the 21st century. That's why my American Families Plan guarantees four additional years of public education for every person in America, starting as early as we can. Is public education at earlier ages really what America needs? Now, let's put the the indoctrination that we've been talking about aside for a moment. Let me do, I'm going to talk about, let's talk about if the schools were just teaching the basics, is it the best thing for America's kids? Well, the answer to that question is no. According to a newly reported uh, study, uh, newly uh, reports from a study, um, it's the first well-controlled long-term study that has ever been conducted of a statewide publicly supported preschool program. I mean, the, 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 the credentials of the teachers were impeccable. The curriculum had been reviewed. Uh, this was the, the perfect scenario to give kids, quote-unquote, a head start. Well, here to talk about this is Dr. Catherine Stevens. She's the founder and CEO of the Center on Child and Family Policy, which aims to advance the well-being of young children and their families through conducting rigorous research, providing evidence-based analysis, and fostering a more robust competition of ideas in early childhood policy. Dr. Stevens, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I doubt that you were surprised by this, but this study out of Tennessee is pretty remarkable as it uh, lays out the case that what the government is pursuing doesn't work. Well, 
um, to, in one way, um, people find this study surprising because the re its results are not the same as a lot of other research um, because of the way, because this was a much more rigorous study. However, the findings of this study are consistent with what we would expect given what we know about early human development, which is that a school environment, a group institutional setting is not optimal for uh, early childhood development. You know, we, we hear a lot about following the evidence, the science, uh, and the social science, pretty clear. In fact, interesting that uh, Germany, that did studies on this back in the 70s, rejected this idea of early childhood education. Uh, but again, this is a pretty broad study, and you're right. Uh, you're absolutely right. This builds upon previous studies that have been done. But in this study, coming out of Vanderbilt, what I find fascinating about this, this is a pretty big study. I mean, 3,000 children uh, were involved in the study. It looked at them over an extended period of time. And the bottom line, well, I'm going to let you tell our viewers and our listeners what the bottom line of the findings of this exhaustive study were. So the bottom line of the findings is that right after the, 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 these researchers compared two groups of children, one group was admitted to pre-K, but there weren't enough spaces for all the kids. So there were, uh, there were about ha a little over half the kids got into pre-K. The other kids had parents who had wanted to get them into pre-K. However, there were not enough spaces. So the researchers used this to compare these two groups of children, all of whom had parents who were trying to get them into pre-K, one group went to pre-K, the other group did not go to pre-K. What they found was that at the beginning of kindergarten, the children who had gone to pre-K had slightly stronger skills. They knew a few more letters, a few more numbers. However, what was what's really um, uh, valuable about this study is the, it's a controlled study in the way that I just described, which is kind of the gold standard of research and not done much in early childhood. And these researchers have been following the, the, the children, the pre-K group and the not pre-K group, uh, now up through sixth grade. What they found by third grade is that the children who had attended pre-K were slight doing slightly worse on achievement like math and reading uh, achievement tests what concerned the researchers after the, at the third grade um, uh, point was that they were seeing some evidence of behavior um, work, kind of behavior issues with the pre-k group that they didn't see in the non-pre-k group this the report that's just come out is reporting after sixth grade and what they found was that still the children who attended pre-K are doing a little worse in terms of basic academic skills. However, they're doing a lot worse. The, the pre-K group, the kids who went to pre-K are doing a lot worse than the kids who did not in terms of uh, discipline issues, behavior issues. Uh, and that... The, the, um, and that those those the problems that the pre-K group has uh, been has is having have gotten worse since third grade. So the longer they've been in school, the worse these problems have become. Uh, so what this tells us is that attending pre-K did not help them in their elementary school experience. As a matter of fact, it seems to have hurt them. So it's like it gave them an initial boost of energy, uh, but it quickly ran out and they fell behind their, uh, their, their, their peers. Now, uh, going back to the design of this study, I mean, it is a randomized controlled experiment, two groups. So, you know, for those, and, th and these are coming from um, lower income groups. Uh, so it's all the same. So, I mean, these all, all, everything, when you look at everything, it is a level playing field. So you can't say, well, they're doing bad because they had this or they didn't have this. I mean, we're, we're looking at this and you see this gap expanding 
over time. I, I'm, I'm curious, are they going to continue to look beyond the sixth grade uh, to whether or not uh, we go to the 12th grade to see if these kids make it all the way through, if they have additional behavior uh, issues? What, what's going to, are they going to continue the study? I think, I think so. The, um, as I understand it, the Tennessee state legislature authorized additional funding for the study several years ago as they were seeing these, 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 these really valuable results. Oh, another thing that I that you that you'll hear is um, often if you're just reading the newspaper, there's there, there is frequently said that a large body of research shows that pre-K quote works. Um, but along the lines of what you were just explaining, the the, the difference with this study, and there there's only one other study that's been done like this, is you're comparing apples to apples. So as you said, it's just an absolute level playing field. The way these studies are usually done is they take a large group of kids in high school, say, and they see how each group's doing. And then they find out, had those children gone to pre-K? So -hmm. some kids had gone to pre-K, some kids had not gone to pre-K. However, that's not apples to apples because pre-K is voluntary. So what that means is, that the children who had gone to pre-K, what that tells us is they had parents right. who made a big effort to get them into pre-K, right? Right. And right. so what so the, the 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 outcomes that are reported and attributed to pre-K are actually it's much it's much more logical that that's those outcomes are actually telling us something about parents. So right. in other words, att- attending pre-K doesn't it it doesn't uh cause those outcomes it may predict them because it shows that the this family is particularly interested in education particularly engaged with their with their child's education which research has shown is the the number one factor in children's um, academic success yeah don't get me started on that dr stevens because we're seeing now educational establishment not wanting parents involved but in fact we have abundance of of research that says that's a determining factor in the success of a child. But that's another that's a rabbit. I'm not going to chase that today. I, I want to go back to um, the the outcomes. You know, you, you mentioned the issue of the, the gap in learning, behavioral issues, but there's also uh, this report of learning disorders. Uh, that we're seeing more learning disorders among those that were in the pre-K program. Now, uh, some, you know, a lot of these things we don't know the exact reason for, a lot of it's speculation, but some suggest uh, it could in part be because of labels that we put on kids as they make their way through the process. Can you talk to that? Yes. So so I guess it, it's probably not correct to say that they have more learning disorders. We don't know what they have or, or don't have. Um, what they have is more diagnosed, as you've just suggested, diagnoses of learning disorders. And research has suggested that children, that, 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 that children getting a diagnosis uh, is actually detrimental, not always, but in a lot of cases. So, um, so let, let me give, Dr. Stevens, let me give, not to cut you off, but let me give you a scenario. Okay. So you're, you're taking these kids and you're corralling them in a classroom, these young kids who need to be outside playing, uh, you know, throwing sticks and climbing up walls and doing things that kids do to get that energy out and to, and to explore and to learn and to develop uh, their skills. So you're confining them into a room and they don't like to sit still. Uh, and they're not really responsive to a to a teacher, and so you you put a, a label on them as being uh, you know ADD or whatever, and that that begins to to be a shaping label upon that child, does it not? Yes, yes, and plus there's just more more time in school for um, teachers to to diagnose them, right? I I used to work in K-12, Tony, and I observed that when teachers were not good at their job, they were not able to teach. Uh, Some, not not all, but but some um, went went to great lengths to to, um, establish that it's not their fault, it's the fault of the kid. 
And that is where, in some cases, that's where these diagnoses come in, is a teacher is having a trouble, just exactly as you said, um, partly because the child is 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 in a, in not in a not in a developmentally appropriate environment, and perhaps also the teacher is just not good, right? And teachers, when you give a child a diagnosis, uh, they 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 are often taken out of your classroom either altogether or for long periods of time, so you don't have to deal with them. So so it's it's um, it, it it is that's the fact that they have more they have been diagnosed with more learning disabilities does not appear to be a good sign. It's going to be very interesting, as you've said, to see as they're followed forward, how that plays out when they're older. I'm just thankful that uh, when I was uh, a kid in school that they didn't have all those labels because uh, my my school file was not big enough to contain all of the labels they would have put on on me. You know, look, it's the reality of uh, creative kids. You know, I, I, I was joking the other day. I get paid for what I used to get sent to the hall for today. Uh, you know, we have to let the individual child develop. And that's a part of the, I think, the problem with uh, public education in particular is that we put all of the kids into a single mold and moving it even to a younger age where these kids do not have an opportunity to develop their own personality, their own style. We're, f we're putting them into this mold at the earliest of ages. And I think this is this is extremely alarming to the effect that this have not only on the kids, but I think on the creative nature of America that has made our economy work and has made us a successful nation that all of a sudden we're producing these educational clones by putting these kids in these uh, educate these uh, academic settings so early in life. Yeah, well, there's there's nothing in developmental science that suggests that putting four-year-olds or three-year-olds or even younger children in group institutional settings is what they need to develop well. It's just not what developmental science tells us. You know, my theory on this is as follows. We, up until the mid-1960s, the public schools were a, a building that kids went to to learn basic skills, as they used to say, reading, writing, and arithmetic. It was a very discreet particular thing that the schools did. During the War on Poverty, it was actually Lyndon Johnson was the first to suggest that the public schools would be the vehicle for upward mobility in our society that public schools would solve poverty. That was not something that we thought in America before the 1960s. Since the 1960s, we have come to equate human development with schooling. We never used to think that. For all of human history, we never equated human development with schooling. That has become such a uh, such a binding way of thinking. We don't even realize we're thinking it anymore. Mm -hmm. Obviously, spending on the schools has gone up and up and up. As we are now understanding, for very good reasons, how absolutely crucial early childhood is, we're understanding that early development is very important. Because we're used to thinking of school, when we're now focused on early childhood, we think early school. Right. So we are confusing early development with early school. And the outcome of that could be disastrous uh, for the children and for the nation. Dr. Stevens, I hate to say it, but we're out of time. I've enjoyed our conversation. We'll have it. Uh, we'll have you back on and we'll talk more about it. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. And folks, thank you for being with us as well. And until next time, I leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.